Welcome, everybody. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on this podcast as we lead up to our Annapolis Summit. As you know, this is our 15th anniversary for the Annapolis Summit coming up, where we interview the governor, the Speaker of the House, and the President of the Senate. Uh, you are, of course, invited to be part of that audience and bring your questions to our highest elected officials with your ideas and to join us there at the Governor Calvert House on January the 10th from 7.30 to 9.30 a.m. All you have to do is just go to the Daily Record slash Annapolis dash summit and hit the button that says purchase tickets and you can be part of the action. It's always a great event, the 15th anniversary of the Annapolis Summit. So leading up to that today, we continue our joint effort with the Daily Record, our print partners, uh, in producing this Annapolis Summit. They are writing the articles. We are producing the podcasts. Today's podcast is about the beer wars. Yes, not how much you can chug, but the battle between distributors, large breweries, and the small craft breweries that abound in the state of Maryland who want more freedom to sell their beer to you. The man who led these wars is Peter Franchot, who is controller for the state of Maryland, who is fighting on behalf of the small craft breweries. So he joined us for this conversation, and we reached out to the others who are in the article, Jack Malani, who is the legislative chairman for the Maryland State License Beverage Association and owner of Monaghan's Pub. He declined to join us and instead referred us to Ramey Eck, who is president of the Maryland Public Health Association, who does join us for this broadcast. We also reached out to Delegate Derek Davis, who is chairman of the Economic Matters Committee, where this bill will be debated and heard. He declined to join us, saying he wants to wait until the hearings begin in Annapolis in 2018. We start our conversation with Controller Peter Franchot. Welcome, everybody, once again to another podcast here. I'm Mark Steiner, and on our up, lead-up to the Annapolis Summit with our partner, The Daily Record, uh, we are covering issues that are going to be front and center in the General Assembly and that we'll be talking about on January the 10th at the Annapolis Summit with the Governor, President of the Senate, uh, and the Speaker of the House. And one of those issues people have been calling the beer wars, um, and the man who kind of created this new front in these beer wars is our state controller, Peter Franchot, who joins us in-house now to talk about that. He recently talked to Brian Sears, our partner of The Daily Record, and joins us in studio here at the Center for Emerging Media. And Peter, welcome. Good to have you with us. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here, and all the best to your folks that follow your podcasts. And uh, thank you for your many decades of great community activism. Appreciate that. Thank you. So, this is so so so. What's happening with this? Yeah, so, here's so, the story. So you created something here, a yeah. new push for this legislative session around craft breweries in Maryland. So let's kind of outline the idea first. Well, I'm the chief alcohol regulator, the comptroller of the state. I'm lucky and privileged to be the comptroller, and I didn't realize it when I ran for the office against William Donald Schaefer 11 years ago that I get to. Well, it's been 11 years. Yeah, I get to regulate <laughs> alcohol and. Uh, so I've made a number of site visits. I've become uh, a big fan of these independent craft brewers. Why am I a big fan? Well, most of them are family-owned. Uh, they risk everything. They put everything they've got into these breweries. Some of them fail. A lot of them do very well. But uh, uh, And I love the grit of uh, these folks. They tend to be uh, millennials, you know, in their 30s or so. Right. And uh, the... Uh, businesses together are not a huge thing in the Maryland economy. We're about a $340 billion GDP, but uh, you know about $800 million of economic activity is attributable to Maryland-based 
uh, craft brewers. And so I've always liked them, even though I'm their regulator. I obviously enforce the uh, laws fairly and vigilantly and do my responsibility there. But uh, since I've visited most of them, sampled their products, uh, I, I must Is that admit. that part of the job, too? Yeah, tough job. I gotta, <laughs> somebody's got to do it. Uh, but uh, I've become enamored of uh, their innovation and their entrepreneurship. And uh, the catalyst for all of this beer issue was uh, a unfortunate piece of legislation last uh, session, which uh, was partly motivated by Guinness and Diageo, their corporate owner, uh, coming to Baltimore. Um, and uh, it concerned uh, barrel limits. This is how much beer a Maryland brewery can sell at its own tap room. These are establishments set up at the breweries that they can only sell their beer, their own beer that they produce. They can't sell anyone else's beer or any other really uh, any other products. But they're very important to start up breweries because they produce some real revenue in real time. Anyway, 1283 infamously uh, was the bill that passed. Yeah, became a catalyst for a lot of negative talk about uh, Annapolis, how they treat uh, brewers and uh, the state's uh, reputation because I emphasize to people that these cr this craft sector is not just craft beer. It's also emblematic of the state's business reputation, the sophistication of uh, its citizens as far as supporting a manufacturing sector. I mean, these guys produce beer. Uh, and uh, something that is associated with millennials and something that's associated with a green environment and uh, produces jobs and wages, et cetera, uh, for the state. And the bill put the state in a uh, position where we became a punchline around the country for a state that's not interested in, uh, unfortunately, in appreciating or thanking or, uh, or fostering growth of uh, craft beer. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We can go into it with your uh, listeners if you want. But uh, essentially, uh, what I've asked the legislature to do uh, on the heels of this uh, legislation, I set up a task force. We had all the members of the uh, three-tier system involved, uh, distributors, retailers, wholesalers, and the brewers. And we came up with a uh, what we call a 12-pack of reforms that essentially – uh, no pun intended. Wipes out all of the uh, <clears throat> anti-competitive, antiquated, dysfunctional, inconsistent, or contradictory uh, regulations that have grown up around this sector. So, so I mean, the, the, the a couple things for this, and I really want to probe here. So, last year when the bill came to the, to the floor, it passed by huge margins. Twelve eighty-three in the House. I'm looking at the article from the Sun and the Baltimore Business Journal. Uh, One hundred nineteen to fifteen. In the Senate, 45 to 1. So these were overwhelming numbers that limited, continued to limit the ability of craft breweries to expand, which we can talk about in a moment. So there clearly is some kind of political force that's saying that, that, the, that distributors and uh, large brewers uh, have some influence, or you wouldn't see this overwhelming number of state legislators voting for a bill like this. That, I mean, most people I know in the craft industry, I know a lot of them, were incensed by it because they said, we can't grow, we can't make money. That's their argument. Um, and they have to literally, if they sell too much to a distributor, is one of the laws is they have to buy it back at a higher price often than that they sold it to the distributor for in the first place. 
So I said, what's the dynamic here? Well, I know from it's your I, perspective. I know it's ironic from a former delegate uh, from the <laughs> People's Republic at Tacoma Park, but <laughs> I, I actually believe in the free enterprise system, and I believe that government should not pass laws to protect incumbents. They should pass laws to promote uh, the public interest uh, in this area of alcohol regulation. Obviously, we want to protect the our underage kids from uh, the problems of drinking. We want to make sure the products are safe and properly labeled and all of that. So there is a public uh, regulatory interest. But in, with, as so often happens with government regulation, uh, the lobby uh, lobbies become super powerful and super influential, and the alcohol lobby in Annapolis, my reputation, is the most powerful of all. And they've used that power in a way not to protect the public interest, but to protect their own special interests. And the concept is uh, we don't want any competition, so we're not going to let anybody in uh, our sector. If uh, these new breweries want to have um, tasting rooms or tap rooms set up, uh, we're not going to let them uh, there because we think they're competitive with some of the existing uh, businesses. I happen to disagree fundamentally on their concept. I think that a rising tide will lift all boats. More beer sold in Maryland is good for everybody, uh, distributors, wholesalers, and retailers. But the alcohol lobby is so arrogant and so powerful uh, that they're able to get bills passed unanimously with very little review, and they're able to uh, kill legislation that would benefit uh, small businesses. I love these breweries. They are unbelievably impressive to me. And uh, they don't always succeed. A lot of them fail. I mean, it's, a, it's the vagaries of uh, prices and the supplies and utilities and other things that they have to deal with. But here they've put together, in effect, a 21st century manufacturing sector for the state of Maryland. We keep talking about manufacturing. Uh, last week I was up off right off uh, 83 in uh, Medfield where they have an old, abandoned uh, Sears Roebuck distribution facility, which nobody in, would ever go and visit, and in a 100 years is never going to be renovated or rehabilitated. And a brewery, Union Craft, has moved in there, and they have bought the 140,000-square-foot deteriorating abandoned facility and they're going to put a new brewery in, 50,000 square feet. They're also going to bring in a whole bunch of other associated manufacturing uh, retail stores like bakeries. And uh, the point that I'm making here is that here we are right in the middle of Baltimore City with all the problems and challenges of Baltimore City. What's everybody keeps saying is the solution? The solution's jobs and manufacturing jobs at that. Uh, and uh, here it is right in front of us. It's as plain as the nose on our face. This uh, sector of independent beer brewers has great potential for areas like Baltimore, Western Maryland, Southern, uh, over on the Eastern Shore, down in the Southern part of that. So I'm pretty passionate about uh, saying to the legislature, you made a big mistake with 1283. Not a fatal mistake, but a near, near fatal mistake. Uh, you've opened the state up to uh, all of the breweries that are being recruited now by Virginia and other states to move over there where they have a lot less regulation than we have. And um, they've created a problem where no, where the problem really didn't exist before, and now we need to correct it. So what are we proposing? What we're suggesting is let's go back to the basics of capitalism and free enterprise, 
and say to the brewers, look, if you can produce good beer and sell good beer to consumers, have at it. We're not going to restrict you as far as the amount that you can sell, the conditions that you can produce it under, the hours that your tap rooms can be open. We're going to essentially mimic Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia, and D.C. and open up a competitive level playing field. Now, that is... I've been told the bill is going to be dead on arrival down there because Mike Miller or Mike Bush or somebody doesn't like it or doesn't like me. That's not the point. The point is that this is something that can really benefit the state in a significant way and I believe uh, is intensely popular with uh, Maryland citizens, regardless of ideological divides or party uh, partisan divides, when you get outside of Annapolis and talk about craft beer, it's the one issue I know that can unite Trump voters and Clinton voters. (laughs) And uh, so it's kind of right in front of us. They keep saying, well, you know, don't you have a sponsor problem or, uh, you know, you're not kissing our ring enough or you're not... uh, groveling in front of us, begging us for something. I'm, I'm suggesting that once the public latches on to this issue, and from a small business perspective, uh, I think you're going to see a big change in the legislature, partly because next year is an election year, and nobody wants to be against small businesses, against beer, against uh, family-owned uh, entrepreneurs. So a couple of things here. Um, what, well, how do you respond to the quote, I think it was in The Sun, from Delegate Derek Davis, uh, who presides over the Economic Matters Committee in the House, when he said, I'm trying to figure out what problem we're trying to correct. So yeah. I mean, well, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's the standard pushback, which is, uh, you know, prove it to us that you have a number of uh, independent brewers that are bumping up against the limits that we have. And the problem with that argument is that the the mere existence of the limits, where we're surrounded by states that have, for the large part, no limits. You're talking about low limits on the on the on the on number the of barrels they can produce. Number of barrels that you can produce and sell at your own tap room. Most states have no limits, and uh, we're saying, well, we've got now got a, we moved it from 500 barrels to 2,000 barrels that you can sell and an extra 1,000 barrels if you do this crazy system you referred to where they sell it at retail to a wholesaler and the wholesaler then takes it off their property, takes it to their property, then puts it back on the truck, brings it back and charges it. They have to buy it back at retail. Right. Obviously their own beer that they produce. So it's these kind of cockamamie impediments that have been put in place by uh, 1283, and then there are just dozens of these uh, things sprinkled through the state laws. I've got the uh, 12-pack here. Uh, You know, we're going to advocate getting rid of the limits on Class 5 taproom sales, no limits for take-home sales, no limits on production of beer, no limits uh, on uh, the need to take tours. Now if you go to a brewery, they're allowed to sell you beer but you have to take a tour. And so even if you've gone, it's your third visit that week, you got to take the third damn tour. Okay, there's a lot of things that have been built up uh, because the alcohol lobby has so much power and sway. They're able to put this stuff into law. 
And it's not there to protect the public interest. It's to protect their own competitive special interests. Once we begin to open it up and people realize it's not disruptive like Amazon or Uber or something like that, this is uh, going to be good for everybody in the state. This beginning of our conversation about beer wars brewing with our state controller, Peter Franchot. Peter, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Now we're about to talk with Ramey Eck, who is president of the Maryland Public Health Association. Ramey, welcome. Good to have you with us in the studio. Thank you so much, Mark. Pleased to be here. Good to have you here. So, so, uh, so, so what? All right. When I looked at the bill at first, and we talked to Comptroller Franchot about the bill, it seemed to me, on the face of it, to make some sense that the industry is dominated by uh, the giants of beer uh, brewing across the country and the distributors, and the one of the businesses of the moment of the last 17, 20, 25 years of the development of small craft breweries, of which Baltimore has many. They say the playing field is not even. So, but you have, but your response to that is something different than just about business. Absolutely. And I want to step back to how you introduced this, uh, use the word opposition. And we are not in no way, shape, or form opposed to this. Uh, we were kind of surprised, I think, in the public health field that the task force that involved 40 people didn't involve anyone from public health or safety at all. It was all from industry and a number of political leaders. So that there signaled mm -hmm. that maybe part of the conversation wasn't being heard. A uh, little over half of the people in Maryland report drinking in the past 30 days, which is what we kind of call current drinkers. And so there's a lot of people that maybe weren't uh, part of that conversation just because we didn't have the health and safety aspect of it. So not here to say that we were opposed to this by any means. Interesting. Uh, there's something called health in all policies. It's a called what? Health in all policies. Health in all policies. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that's come up before or if you're aware of that, but it's a way of introducing considerations of health into the policymaking process. And even in some places where it may not be as obvious that you'd want, say, you're working on the transportation issues or things like that, uh, it's really important to consider health from the beginning because there may be unforeseen consequences if you don't. And so that's one of the things that we really wanted to raise is that by not having the public health or the public safety voice, you may be introducing unforeseen consequences uh, on the case of part of the population, all of the population, you just really can't tell. So, all right, so, so let's take a couple steps backwards here. So the, in, in 2010, a bill passed uh, that Vinnie DeMarco and others pursued to raise the alcohol tax the first time in a long time in the state of Maryland. Yes. With some of the, the, the studies saying that it has lowered uh, death rates for drunk driving and more because of the raise in the tax. So how does something like that fit into this? I mean, so what would you see as the alternative in 2017 to how this bill or this idea is being pursued, will be pursued in Annapolis? Sure. So alcohol taxes are one of the most effective ways to reduce morbidity and mortality from alcohol overall. Um, in addition to uh, drunk driving, they also saw reductions in rates of gonorrhea, uh, one of the STIs. And that's something that's been replicated in other cities and other jurisdictions. So it wasn't just us having this right. uh, abnormal result. So uh, one of the things I talked about in the recent op-ed that we published was that 
uh, Maryland was estimated to have about $5 billion in, in costs from al- alcohol-related costs, and that's anywhere from lost productivity to health care costs, criminal justice costs. But we only take in about $310 million in taxes to the state. So there's a very large gap in between what the government and what from taxpayers are paying, both drinkers and non-drinkers, uh, for this alcohol-related harms. So that's something that it, we should be aware of, and we should be considering what we want to do about closing that gap. So, so what would so if well, two things? I mean, a, I want to explore why nobody from the the world of health, public health was on this commission, and what that means, um, and 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 b, what would be your testimony if you had to testify on this bill? What would you be saying? about this bill should doing, but let's start for the commission. So, I mean, when you learned that nobody from the health, public health world was going to be involved um, on the commission, what was your response and what was their response? Uh, well, as I said, it was a little surprising that it, a 40-person task force is a pretty large task it's force. large task force, And right. uh, it was a little surprising that, that hadn't, somebody hadn't brought that up or it wasn't consideration from the beginning. There were open meetings. Uh, we were aware of that. And I know some people that did try to go to a couple of them just to get a handle of what was going on. But it doesn't really legitimize health or safety by not actually being on the task force. So we would just say that, you know, as we move forward, there needs to be consideration of health and safety in any type of laws that are going to be considered in the legislature this year. So what, what does that mean for, for what uh, Control French Show and a few others want to see in this bill, which already has opposition from the industry for other reasons, um, but what would be your testimony? I mean, should the bill pass? Should it not pass? What should be in it? It's not there. What are the public health concerns that should be addressed? Sure. I think there's a lot to talk about, and I'm not here to address the bill directly. Mm-hmm. I'm here to make sure that the public health and safety voices are heard. And just to remind people that needs to be part of the conversation as we move forward, there's a lot of time to discuss this bill. I don't think it's a bill as it is. I think it's a series of recommendations. Right, right. Uh, I don't think all of them are bad, but I don't think they've really been assessed to see the short-term and long-term effects for them. And that's just something that I think that, you know, you had the right researcher or, or organization uh, that was involved in it, they would be able to do some of those predictions. So does that mean you think bills like this should not pass until... They've had a study that includes the public health issues that could be involved. Is that part of what you're saying? I think that's kind of a little too blanket. I mean, there's for mm-hmm. sure there's a lot of things we already know, we already have the literature on. But moving, going back to that health and all policies approach, if we incorporate the health considerations from the beginning, we're already thinking about these things and we're working our way through them as we move along. So Okay. So that's uh, so the clarity here just for, for this conversation is that this is not about the bill directly, but anything that we pass in the state of Maryland, especially when it comes to issues around alcohol and food, have to have the public health component. Understand the consequences. That has to be part of any legislative decision in terms of how we design a bill and laws and, the, and laws that pertain to that. Yeah, so I'd mostly agree with that. The bill directly itself, it's, it's kind of subtitled A World Without Limits. And I think that's a little concerning that they actually chose that as the subtitle, because if you're talking about alcohol marketplaces, we don't really want an, a world without li- limits. This is not laundry detergent that we're selling. This is something that does have major health concerns, uh, morbidity and mortality. So, you know, there's a lot of death that's associated with this in, in, in some degree. So 
it's not an ordinary commodity. So there has to be protections in that marketplace for people, both drinkers and non-drinkers. And mentioned earlier that a little over half the people are current drinkers, so that leaves a lot of people that may be paying for these uh, harms that are happening, paying the price, and they're not even drinking themselves. So then, finally, so what will, so what will be your approach come January the 10th? Well, we're hoping to stay involved as, as a public health organization and uh, hoping that uh, a lot of time the legislators may reach out to us individually, uh, and us, I mean the public health or safety field in general, researchers and things like that, so we can actually talk to some of our legislators. Well, things that come up, the bills that actually come up, um, you know, we can offer testimony on some of those that become more specific rather than just a very large set of recommendations. Ray Miak has been with us as we continue to pursue what this craft beer bill would really mean from all and many different angles. Uh, She is president of the Maryland Public Health Association, uh, wrote the op-ed, Maryland should consider health and social costs of alcohol industry, not just economics. We'll be uh, linking to that as well on our site, and good to have you with us. Thank you so much. So to conclude, let me just say this is a very complex subject, this thing we're calling the beer wars. What State Comptroller Peter Franchot is advocating makes sense to us on first blush, allowing small craft breweries to be able to sell as much beer as they want from their breweries and to distribute it on their own without interference from the distributors. Those distributors have the right to distribute most of the beer in the state of Maryland because of a law passed a long time ago that wanted to divide power between breweries and distributors. But now that has gotten a little murky. And then there's the public health angle. So it all is a very complex issue, but one that I think points to the contradictions inside our system, but also calls on us to think very clearly about what we want the role of small business to be in our communities. So for more of that, join us at the Annapolis Summit. Just go to thedailyrecord.com slash Annapolis dash summit and hit purchase tickets and join us there January the 10th from 7.30 to 10 a.m. at the Governor Calvert House, your chance to talk directly to Governor Larry Hogan, Senate President Mike Miller, and House Speaker Michael Bush. Be part of your future. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belvidia. Download the podcast and more at stanishow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at marksteinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.